Hello and welcome to my interview with Judge Jesse Reyes. My name is Carlos Medina. And before we get to the interview, I want to explain why I wanted to sit down with the judge and what I wanted to take away from it. First of all, it's remarkable that in the year 2020, Judge Jesse Reyes is trying to become the first Latino to be a Supreme Court justice. Secondly, I was not aware that we voted for a Supreme Court justices at the state level. I wanted to know what his path was to get to where he is today, what drives him, and how he plans to impact our community. But more importantly, for me, I wanted to be more educated on our candidates when we all go vote March 17th. With the way our political climate is currently, it is imperative that we start getting more educated about who we are putting in positions of power. With that being said, I want to thank you for tuning in, and I hope you find this interview to be as educational for you as it was for me. Enjoy, and don't forget to go vote March 17th. All right, so good evening. Uh, my name is Carlos Medina. It's a pleasure to have Judge Jesse Reyes here with us today. Jesse, how are you? Very well, thank you. And it's a pleasure for me to be here with you, Carlos. Uh, we're going to enjoy the opportunity to be able to uh, speak to you and, and to your listeners. Thank you. A lot of people don't know that judges in Illinois, uh, Supreme Court, are actually elected. So uh, one of the things that we want to do is really educate our listeners to find out who it is that they're going to be elected on March 17th. Right. So uh, if you can, please elaborate a little bit on you know what it was like growing up here in Chicago. Sure. So uh, I grew up in the Pilsen Bridgeport neighborhood, and when we moved into uh, Pilsen, we were the, one of the first Latino families to move into uh, the neighborhood. Uh, at the time when we first uh, moved into Pilsen, it was predominantly... Polish, Polish people and, 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 and German and as well. Um, and from that experience early on, uh, I got the uh, appreciation and uh, of uh, living with, with other individuals in terms of other ethnicities and other cultures and became aware of the importance of uh, interacting with other ethnicities and, and cultures. So it was, a, for me, it was a very enjoyable experience growing up in Chicago at that time, um, you know, to, to see the evolution of the neighborhoods and, you know, how they expanded, particularly as the Latinos started moving in, uh, into uh, Pilsen and into to Bridgeport as well. Right. Well, and roughly what year was it? Well, that, that was the uh, um, early 60s okay. um, when uh, when we moved into, uh, into Pilsen. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like uh, uh, early uh, early 60s, uh, early, uh, you know, late uh, 50s. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I remember is uh, uh, seeing a young man who was uh, at that time running for president. Uh, you know, many of us we, we kids who we were gathered in front of a storefront, they, they always had the television on it. You know, watching John Kennedy, you know, as he was speaking, you oh, know, and uh, that was, that was, you know, because we all had different views in terms of, you know, what he meant to to us. And as a, as a young Latino, I saw him as someone that was going to create opportunities, uh, not only uh, for uh, uh, certain segments of our population, but for all segments of population. But it was clear to me, even at that young age, that he was someone that was going to you know, open up the doors for, for, for everybody to have opportunities in this country. Yeah. Wow. So you've really seen the, uh, the neighborhood go through different changes. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause now it's, uh, uh now it's, now it's doing a, uh, another sort of reversal in right. terms of, uh, the neighborhood is changing. Uh-huh. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. So what made you decide to go to law school? 
I always wanted to be a lawyer, as far as I can remember, as little as I was, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, a lawyer was someone who spoke for people that couldn't speak for themselves. The, the lawyers were the individuals that went into the courtrooms and defended people's rights and, and stood up for, uh, for them uh, when, uh, when no one else stood. Uh, so that always spoke to me in terms of, uh, you know, um, being in a position of being able to, to help out others. Uh, I've always wanted to to help others, and, and that was, for me, an avenue by which I could do that. So uh, I always wanted to be a, a lawyer, as ever since I could remember. Great. Look, you must have been really good at arguing. You know, uh, being a Latino, that's the thing, right? If right. You're arguing, you're yeah. Kind of right. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And my family would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up going to the uh, John Marshall Law School, right? Yes. What made you decide to go? Well, John Marshall provided me an opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, and that was to be able to go to school mm-hmm. and, and work. I had to coming from a blue collar family, uh, being the oldest in, in the family. Uh, you know, my parents. Uh, at limited financial means. Uh, so I had to support myself when I went through college as well as uh, law school. So um, John Marshall provided me an opportunity where I could continue going to school and then uh, uh, and, you know, going to school, uh, I mean, going to school and then at the same time working. So uh, it, was, it was a great fit for me. And you know, at the time I didn't realize that John Marshall was uh, one of the schools that has been touted um, in this county and in the state as, as producing you know, the most judges that have said uh, they're sitting in the state court. Oh, they, wow. have, they have been in state court and they're currently sitting in, in state court. So, But I, I uh, also wanted to go to John Marshall because they had a reputation of uh, creating and establishing and developing uh, litigators. And that was one of the things that I realized that I wanted to do is I wanted to be a litigator. Uh, so, uh, cause I wanted to get into court. So, so John Marshall was a perfect fit for me. It, uh, was, uh, it's, it's always been known as a school of opportunity and it definitely uh, provided me with an opportunity to be able to, to become a lawyer and to be able to give back. Fantastic. Um, so you were a, a young Latino lawyer, uh, practicing law in the eighties. Yes. Right? Um, what was that like? I know you, you were one of very few. Right. Well, there, there wasn't that many of us around, uh, and uh, it, it was it was it was a great time in, in terms of being able to experiment in, in terms of uh, opportunities. Uh, so I had the opportunity uh, first of working in a personal injury uh, plaintiffs firm, uh, also doing workers' comp cases. And one of the things that I realized very quickly is that I was able to to help out many of the uh, individuals in the Latino community. They were injured on the job or, or sustained injuries and, and were seeking uh, compensation for, for their injuries. So, and there was a very few uh, Latino lawyers working in that area. Uh, so I, uh, I enjoyed it uh, and I wanted to do more of it and I wanted to develop my skills. And then that's when I decided to go to the city of Chicago and work in the torts division, which is uh, also civil wrongs. That's a uh, torts means a civil wrong. So I decided to, to go there because I knew I was going to be able to get the experience. I wasn't going to get paid much, but I, but I knew I was going to get the experience. And then I did. I tried cases in federal court and in state court. I tried bench trials, I tried jury trials, I did arbitrations, I did mediations. Uh, and in fact, that was uh, uh, one of the early uh, choices to be in the what was then known as the special litigation uh, section of the, the of the city. So we handled all the cases where the city had potential liability of a million dollars and up. 
and uh, I was one of the one. Yeah, I was I was the only Latino in that section, uh, and one of the few Latinos in, in the in the office at the time. But as as time went on, you know, I was able to reach out and we were able to get more people into the corporation council's office and get more Latinos to be part of that uh, great experience. So, how long did you end up working for the city? Well, I initially always wanted to uh, uh, be there for maybe like about two, three years, but I enjoyed the work, mm-hmm. so I ended up staying for I ended up staying there for about maybe ten years. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, a little bit longer than I wanted, but but again, I was enjoying the, uh, the opportunities and the experiences. Uh, uh, you know, the city prior to when when I was there, uh, it was a, it was an office where um, you basically worked as a part time lawyer. A lot of the people had their own offices, and it was okay. It was it was condoned, so it wasn't like there were anybody was breaking any rules. But then when uh, Jim Montgomery, uh, who was the corporation counsel for Hair Washington, took over. He decided to uh, to change it and, and make it more of a, a boutique litigation uh, firm, okay. and so uh, he was looking for uh, young people that were willing to come in there and, 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 and do the work. And it just so happened that I was there at the right time, and, and uh, so I was one of those uh, selected uh, to be part of that. And it was an exciting time. So you were part of the Earl Washington administration. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I you know I. Uh, I worked on the campaign, uh-huh. um, you know, early on, uh, and then uh, then got the opportunity to uh, be able to work there as a, as a corporation counsel uh, while he was uh, was mayor. And as I said, it was an exciting time, um, you know, from the standpoint of watching the changes that were taking place, mm-hmm. and getting to know a lot, a lot of progressive leaders. Uh, there was a lot of individuals um, that you know at that time. I you know I had a lot of progressive ideas. But I didn't think there was other people like me. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start, you know, working with this uh, administration. And you start realizing there's people that think similarly to you. And so it was exciting. It's like, you know, it's like, hey, there's, there's someone else like me. And so uh, so we would uh, talk a lot of politics and talk a lot about policy and, and things how we wanted to have the city change. And, you know, because, I mean, one of the things is if you, if you look at it, it was, it was an opportunity for minorities. It was an opportunity for people from different ethnicities, right. different religions that were going to be part of that administration. And so it was an exciting time to be part of it. And then I was glad that, you know, I was, I was hired as a lawyer, uh, to be, you know, also, uh, not only, you know, part of it from the political side, but then also from the inside, uh, right. you know, working, trying to help develop uh, policies and make changes in the administration. So that administration was very diverse. Yes, yes, you know, it was very diverse. Uh, as, as I indicated before, uh, you know, I, I was one of the, the first Latinos um, to, to be part of that, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then other uh, individuals uh, um, came in to, to work in the administration. Uh, people who later on, uh, you know, they were they were my um, you know my tutors, my mentors, uh, like uh, Judge Jacqueline Cox, who is now on the federal bankruptcy court. She took me under her wing. And, um, Judge, you know, he's retired now, but Judge Willie Wright was also, you know, a, a mentor, and, and I learned a lot from him watching him try cases. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a great time, and more women started to become part of the uh, administration of the uh, of the law department, which was also, you know, exciting because then it started, you know, creating different perspectives. I mean, that's the importance about diversity. So right. It creates different perspectives, it gives you different outlooks. Yeah, oh, that's that's really great. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit about when you were at the uh, Chicago Board of Education. 
Well, at the Chicago Board of Education, I had the opportunity to come in at the point in time when the city um, got the Board of Education back beforehand. It was uh, the Board of Education was run by the state, uh, and uh, um, the mayor uh, of the city of Chicago, Mayor Daly, at that time wanted to to, to have. Uh, some say in terms of how children were educated in the city. So the, the legislature then uh, created a statute that provided the city to, to, to run uh, the Board of Education uh, in the city of Chicago. And at that point in time, um, individuals like uh, Paul Ballas uh, and uh, Gary Chico uh, were uh, in charge of uh, putting a team together. I was asked to be part of that. I was asked to be part of what was known as the policy and reform um, uh, section. And that was an exciting uh, area to, to work in at that time because not only did I work with other lawyers, but I worked with administrators, I worked with community leaders, I worked with educators. Uh, so it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an exciting time because you also were creating a lot of uh, reforms within the system, but you were also establishing policies that uh, still are in existence uh, today, policies that were needed in terms of making sure that things were done on a, uh, um, in a manner where there was there was integrity uh, and uh, that there was balance. Um, not to say that there wasn't, there was a lack of integrity before that, but for example, uh, you know, we established a system by which um, there was bids that were made for, you know, work that was going to be done for the Board of Education. And it was done through a, a process where it was a silent bid and then you know, the most reasonable bid uh, was the one that would prevail and, and, and take over. And then a lot of the reforms within the school itself uh, were, you know, were established through our, you know, through our session. So it was, it was, it was an exciting time to, you know, to, to be there and I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, but then the opportunity to go on the bench came along. And uh, so, I, you know, that was something that I wanted to do. Uh, as a lawyer, I saw that there was several avenues I might be able to take, uh, but, you know, with a viewpoint of always wanting to be a public servant, I realized the benches were uh, I would be best suited and I would want to be a part of because I could serve the public, you know, being, being on the bench. So when that opportunity came along, I decided to, to, to go for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a wonderful segue, right? So um, in 97, you became the Cook County Associate Judge. Now, for the people listening, can you explain to us what an associate uh, judge does and how they're selected? Sure. So there's uh, there's associate judges. There's what's known as the circuit court judges. And then on the appellate court, there's the appellate court justices. And then, then, of course, the Supreme Court justices. So the associate judge is the uh, individual who, who serves at the circuit court level, at the trial level. Uh, they are selected um, by the judges. And so what, what happens is uh, if there's an opening, the chief judge realizes that you know there might be some need for more associate judges. So there's, they'll open up what they call the books. And then they'll say, well, you know, we need, when I ran, um, there was a need for 18. 18 associate judges. So there was approximately close to like 390 people that applied for those 18 uh, spots. And then they submitted their credentials to the bar associations. The bar associations evaluate the candidates and then they make a recommendation or they, they make a, a not recommendation for, for the associate judge candidate. And then they're submitted to the chief judge who then submits them to his executive committee then they interview uh, the candidates, so everybody who's 
selected to will go in front of the committee and, and be interviewed. And then ultimately, they'll, they'll select what's known as the shortlist. So in our case, when I ran, there was uh, uh, 18 vacancies. Um, so they selected 36 of us to run for the 18. And then you go and meet all the full circuit judges in the entire county. Then ballots are submitted to the circuit court judges. And then they select the, the candidates of their choice. Then, you know, the votes are counted. And then that's, you know, how you're determined. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I know the judges are the ones that are, are making the, the selection. The judges are the ones that are making the selection. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, one of my views has always been that you know, we do have merit selection in online because a lot of people sometimes will say, you know, this is, we need merit selection. We do have merit selection in Illinois, and that's the associate judge process because uh, the candidates that are selected ultimately become associate judges. You know, they, they submit their credentials, uh, you know, they're, they're reviewed in terms of their experience, their knowledge, and you know, what they're going to bring as judges uh, to, to, the, to the bench. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I view that as, as merit selection. So you became the first Latino elected by the people of Cook County to the appellate court in 2012. You talked a little bit about what the uh, associate judge does. What does uh, a judge in the appellate court do? And why, does it, why do you think it took so long for a Latino to get elected? Well, uh, first of all, the, uh, the Court of Appeals reviews everything that happens at the trial level. Mm -hmm. And if there's an issue with regards to a ruling or, or the way the jury decides a case, or, or uh, ultimately the, the outcome of, of a case or our hearing uh -huh. on a motion, the uh, parties have a right to appeal and they, they appeal it to the appellate court. The appellate court then reviews it in terms of determining, first of all, whether or not um, there's uh, merit for the appeal. And if there is, then, they, then the appellate court will take the, the case and then review it and then make a decision one way or another. And it's either maybe you know affirming the trial court or reversing the trial court, or maybe um, reversing the, uh, the trial court and remaining it, meaning you know with, with instructions. Okay. Um, so sometimes th those, some, sometimes uh, there was something that maybe happened, and we have to send it back, and then we kind of say to the to the trial court, okay, this is what needs to happen next, right? Um, so that's something what the appellate court does. We don't hear any new evidence. We don't see any witnesses. Uh, we'll conduct uh, oral arguments in some cases, but it's only based on the issues that are presented to the appellate court. So that's one of the distinctions between the appellate court and the trial court. In the trial court, there's more emotion sometimes, uh, and there's there's a lot of witnesses. We don't we don't see witnesses. We don't see any new evidence. So whatever the parties tell us, well, what happened was was an error. We'll, we'll consider that error and then make a, make that uh, decision. Um, getting to your second question. But they have to go back a little bit more uh, in terms of when I became a circuit court judge. I, I ran um, against the advice of a lot of people because there was a perception that people would let sounding names uh, could not do well uh, countywide uh, running um, for judiciary. And uh, it, there had been other individuals with landing sounding names that, that had run and were not successful. So that kind of lent credence to that sure. to, uh, that belief. Uh, I decided that you know I was going to try and run anyway. And fortunately, um, you know the voters uh, elected me to uh, to become a full circuit judge uh, countywide. Um, and uh, 
when the time came along to 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 run for the appellate court, when there was an opening in the appellate court, I decided to, to to run for the appellate court. Now, one of the reasons why I wanted to run for the appellate court is because of the appellate court, you have an opportunity um, to have a voice. You have an opportunity to sometimes, uh, uh, you know, make the law in the state. Uh, because once we decide a case in the appellate court, uh, the parties do have an opportunity to appeal it to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court decides not to take the appeal, then our decision on the appellate court becomes the law of the land. Uh, and the Supreme Court, um, you know, will look at the cases very carefully and make a determination, you know, which cases they're going to hear and which cases they're not going to hear. So a lot of the cases that are submitted to the Supreme Court are, are not heard by the Supreme Court. They just decide we're not going to we're not hear those cases. So being on the appellate court is an opportunity to be able to um, to have a voice in, in terms of uh, the precedent that is set in, in the state of Illinois and, and some of the issues that we deal with on a daily basis. What is the percentage of cases that the Supreme Court does actually take on? I would say out of uh, 100 uh, cases that are uh, appealed, mm -hmm. um, about maybe 10% of those cases uh, will be uh, taken on by the by the Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, you know, a lot of them um, pertain to constitutional issues. If there's something that pertains to a constitutional issue, the Supreme Court will take it. If there's a, a discrepancy or, or a disparity between, uh, let's say, two appellate courts right, within our own um, state, then the Supreme Court might take the, that case to kind of clarify the, the case law sure. or, or the, um, uh, the issues. Uh, so, 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 so just a couple examples of uh, cases that the Supreme Court will take. No, that's great because, uh, you know, the majority of people don't, don't even know what the appellate court is how important it is. So knowing that only 10% of those cases that get to the Supreme Court, you, you kind of get a better understanding of how important that you, you role is. Sure. Yeah. And then one of the things also um, that I've done since I've been on the appellate court is, is I invite uh, students, uh, college students, high school students, and, and elementary students to, to come and observe mm -hmm. oral arguments when we have oral arguments. And then sometimes I'll have our uh, my panel members who will be able to participate in a discussion with them as to what would it, you know what was going on. We, we don't tell them how we're going to dispose of the case or you know, what we were thinking how we're going to dispose of the case, but everything else because because you're exactly right. A lot of people do not know you know what goes on at the appellate level, and so I I have always felt that we one way we create access to justice is by providing people access to the courtrooms okay. and letting them observe what takes place and they could see the process at work. So I do that with the students uh, throughout the county um, and at all different levels, elementary and, and so on and so forth, because I think it's important that uh, you know we, we do that. Yeah. So, so then this way they, they get an idea, uh, you know, because all they, most of the public sometimes, their perception is, what they see on television or they see in the movies and uh, Judge Judy's uh, Judge Judy's uh, you know, the, by having them by having them come into the courtroom they get to see in, in real life yeah. you know, what what goes on and, and you know how the process is not like what they see on television in the movies right. and again you know that's the dramatic effect you know they want to sell the movies they want to sell the TV pro programs so on and so forth <laughs> I understand that but uh, you know we're not as dramatic in, in real life. But yeah, very interesting from a lot of perspectives because you know a lot of the issues that we deal with is, is are issues that 
citizens, individuals in, in this community, in this county, have to deal with on a, on a daily basis. So they get to see it come uh, come to uh, come to life. So the Supreme Court, yes, right? Um, oh, I didn't know that Supreme Court justices were actually elected by the people. So that was that was news to me. So I really wanted to give you the opportunity to explain to to our listeners what the process is of getting elected, because obviously you have to be neutral when it comes to parties. Uh, so if you can kind of elaborate a little bit on that and, and how does the Supreme Court position you know, for the state open up? Sure. So there are seven members that sit on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And by the Constitution, uh, three of those seven members are from Cook County. Okay. So the state is divided up into five districts. And Cook County, because of its size in terms of uh, population, mm-hmm. uh, is entitled, pursuant to the Constitution, to three members on the Supreme Court. So when someone runs for the Supreme Court, they run out of their respective district. And in Cook County, we're the first district. So when a, when a vacancy occurs in the Supreme Court and it's from Cook County, then, then you know the candidates have to run from, from Cook County. And then the voters in Cook County get to vote for, for the individual. And if someone passes away or retires, then a vacancy uh, opens up. So once a justice is elected to the Supreme Court, they serve for 10 years. Then they can run for what's known as retention, which means that they, they're, they're again, their name is on the ballot, um, but as long as they receive the percentage that they need to be retained, then they will stay on uh, the court again. Yeah. So these positions, do not come by that often. And uh, so when they do come by, people that want to seek to have a, a voice on the Supreme Court run for them. Right. So and that's one of the reasons why I'm running, because I want to have a voice on, on the Supreme Court. What was the last time there was a vacancy? The last time there was a vacancy was when uh, Justice well, Thomas Fitzgerald. Thomas Fitzgerald retired. Mm-hmm. He, he appointed... Uh, um, Justice Mary Jane Tice, who was an appellate court uh, justice at the time, uh, to the position. And then, so she, uh, along with uh, Joy Cunningham, ran and was elected in 2012 uh, to serve on the uh, Illinois Supreme Court. Justice Tice prevailed in the election, and so she she's the one that's currently sitting uh, as a result of that vacancy that, that took place. Prior to that, uh, it was uh, Justice McMorrow. And she had appointed um, Justice Ann Burke to her vacancy, and she had to run uh, for that position. Can you please discuss the, the legacy of Charles Freeman? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I had the great privilege of knowing uh, Justice Charles Freeman. Mm-hmm. I knew Justice Charles Freeman uh, when he was a trial judge at the, at the circuit court. I got to I got to know him, mm-hmm. and at the time when I first met him. Uh, I, I had heard of, of him because he had sworn in Harold Washington as mayor of Chicago, but I didn't realize at the time when it happened that he actually had been law partners with uh, the mayor uh, back when uh, they were lawyers uh, practicing uh, in, in the city of Chicago. So, yeah, so, but I got to know him as, as a trial judge. Uh, we became friends, and uh, as, as the years went on, you know, I would view him as a mentor. And he was always he always was very uh, uh, always very friendly and always willing to to, to talk and, and uh, he had an open door policy and 
and we would talk about a variety of different uh, issues, judicial issues, you know, sometimes politics, so on and so forth. And then one of the things that uh, really kind of uh, uh, touched me was when when I was able to uh, uh, serve on the appellate court uh, in the building where, where the appellate court is, the Supreme Court's in the same building. And one of the things that, that I did, which is I carried out from the, uh, the circuit court, is to try to bring a little uh, culture to the court. So uh, so I, I would have a, a, a Cinco de Mayo uh, event, and so we would have like tamales and pan dulce and everything else. And, and uh, Justice Freeman was a uh, aficionado of uh, uh, Mexican food and, and Mexican culture, and so he would always be the first one to come down when we had this stuff. And, and uh, he was the first one there to you know be able to get the tamales and the, and the pan dulce because we I would get them fresh in the morning, and then he would be down there and we would sit down and we would talk over coffee. And, so he had good taste. Yeah, very good taste. <laughs> Um, so, you know, so, so I got to know uh, Justice Freeman pretty well on a personal level. And then on another level, uh, one of the reasons why he was a mentor to me is because, you know, he was the first African-American uh, to, um, to be elected to, to the Supreme Court. And when, when he was running for that position, uh, you know, I was, I was a lawyer at the time. And, and, and you know, I uh, tried to assist as much as possible uh, with, with, his, uh, uh, with his election. And then one of the other things that I was able to do uh, for Justice Freeman was uh, I am also president of an organization known as the Diversity Scholarship Foundation. So I was able to obtain a copy of the video when when he got sworn in as as a, a circuit court judge. Um, and at the time, Mayor Daley, uh, Richard J. Daley, was the mayor, and he was there. Uh, at the time when, when he was being sworn in. And so so I presented him with that along with an, an award. As a, uh, you know, we present awards to our foundation, to individuals who have promoted diversity within the legal profession. And so there was no one else that I could think of that deserved that award than, than Justice Freeman. That's a great story. Yeah. Getting back to the court system, so obviously you've been involved in, in for a very long time. Um, what... What do you think that we can improve in our court systems? Well, um, there's three areas where I think that we can improve in our court system. And one is with regards to transparency. I think we have to have a more transparent system. Um, secondly, I think in terms of access to justice. Mm-hmm. And then third, um, diversity. And with regards to transparency, I think sometimes, even though there, there's nothing uh, untold being done, I think sometimes the way appointments are made and, and you know how uh, individuals are, are employed, that process needs to be opened a little bit more. And the public has to become aware of it a little bit more in terms of uh, being able to maybe even have some input into sure. who sits on um, on the uh, on the bench. Um, you know, my view has always been that the courtrooms belong to the people. It's, right. it's their courtroom. It's the people's courtroom. It's, it's not the judge's courtroom. It's not the administrator's courtroom. It's the, the people's courtroom. And so they should have a voice as to who sits on, on, on those benches and who works within the system as well. Uh, so that, that's one in terms of transparency. And in terms of access to justice, again, I think we need to inform the public. As I mentioned before, I don't have the young people come and watch the public court. But I, I think we need to inform the public more in terms of what their rights are when they go to court. You know, what are some of the procedures when they go to court? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's intimidating sometimes 
for someone who's never had to deal with the court system all of a sudden to be there and, and then not know, you know, what do I do? How do I how do I proceed? You know, um, any even if they have a lawyer, just for them to be able to have some knowledge in terms of what's going to happen, you know, how are the cases going to proceed? You know, what's what happens next? I think we need to provide that information to them. I think it's important for the public to become aware of again what happens in their courtrooms, uh, and the best way to do that is. They have, you know, educational forums and, and, and means of providing education to, to the public, which I think is, is, is very important. And then, then diversity. Uh, I think it's very important to have diversity in the system, not only on the bench, but throughout the system itself. Uh, you know, there's, uh, again, in terms of perspectives and perceptions, uh, if you walk into a courtroom and you see someone that looks like you, the perception is, well, okay, well, at least, you know, maybe I'll have, um, someone that's going to listen to me or understand what I have to say. Right. Um, and so I think it's, it's important to, again, to have people that look like all of us on the bench and in the, in the system as well. So those those are some of the areas where I think that we need to maybe work on uh, in terms of developing a, a, a better system. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of the uh, rules that we have to work with. You know, the Supreme Court sets all the rules and the procedures that we all deal with on a day-to-day basis. Some of them, I think, uh, uh, need to be reformed. Some of them need to be advanced. For example, with regards to people with disabilities, I mean, I think we need to provide uh, more access for them uh, to to the courthouses. So some of the courthouses, uh, not only in Cook County, but throughout the state, uh, are not that accessible to people with disabilities. And I think we need to change that. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, for for someone that, that's not dealing with the court system on a day to day basis, having access to that kind of education would be be invaluable. For sure. Them. Yeah. Now I know you've done a lot of work uh, with different ethnic communities. Can you elaborate a little bit of what you've done since you've become judge? Sure. Well, you know, I believe that as a judge, I'm a public servant, mm-hmm. and so I I believe also that I should not only work for the public on the bench, but off the bench. So I've always made it a point to to interact with a variety of different communities and the various uh, bar associations. And part of it is to, again, to provide education to the public with regards to some of the things that they will be seeing in the courtroom or some of the issues that they're going to be dealing with, things that are going to affect them on a daily basis. So, for example, with uh, temporary visitor's driver's license, when that first came into, into existence, we wanted to make sure that the public was aware of who was eligible. How, how do you apply for it? What are the consequences if you if you don't apply? What are the consequences if you do apply? Um, you know, what do you need to have? What 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 information do you need to bring to the Secretary of State's office to be able to get a temporary visitor's driver's license, which is known as the TVDLs? So that was you know one area where where we worked with a variety of different communities and and bar associations to get the information out to the public about uh, what do you need to do in order to avoid foreclosure. What do you need to do if you're in court already? On a foreclosure, you know, how, what process or what steps do you take to maybe possibly save your house uh, or your property? Uh, so, so we would put these forums out there and educate the, the public and, and we would do it, uh, going out into the communities, but then we would also do it via, uh, cable television, regular television and on the radio. Uh, again, communicating all these, uh, issues and these concerns that people have and trying to address them 
So then this way, at least they understood when they go to court, what they need to take. One of the things that we became aware of is that a lot of times they would get the summons to go to court and they just put it in the kitchen drawer, right? And, and never pay attention to it. And unfortunately that they would come, right? That they were supposed to be in court. They would show up to get a default against them, to get a judgment against them. And so that was one of the things we always made sure that everybody realizes you get anything from the circuit court pertaining to your property, make sure you read it because there's actually information on there that helps you if you go to court to tell you what you need to do. Uh, so that was one of the things that we uh, made sure that we did. Uh, and we did it in a variety of different languages. So it wasn't just in English, but it was in Spanish. We did it in Mandarin. Uh, we did it in Polish as well, uh, just to make sure that the various communities uh, were aware of what was going on. And then, you know, also some of them that are, are, are coming down the road. One of them that, are, that I, I like always working on is emojis. Right. Uh, people say emojis. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, there's a lot of litigation uh, surrounding emojis and people do not realize that. And so I've been uh, going out and speaking at, at, you know, chambers of commerce. I've been speaking out at uh, a variety of different organizations, um, bar associations, um, because there's been a lot of litigation around the use of emojis. So to be clear, Maurice, when you when you mention emojis, right, you're actually talking about emojis. A little smiley face, yeah, yeah. So so <laughs> I've been following this since we started using emojis in 2004. Uh-huh. I like I like trying to look at areas of the law where there might be um, some trends developing, and that's one of the areas. You send emoji to someone, all right, and. Your intent might be one thing, but then when someone receives it, they might view it differently, right? So there's a lot of uh, litigation around domestic violence cases in terms of the use of emojis. You know, are you threatening me with this emoji? Or this, this, you know, you say it's a water gun, but it might be a pistol, right? Um, but there's been a lot of civil litigation around the use of emojis as well. So, you know, for example, there's a lot of people that are employees who, when they find out that the people in the human resources offices were using these funny emojis talking about them, you know, they say, hey, I, I was being defamed. I was, you know, uh, I, I was being harassed. Uh, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have a chance. They already had a viewpoint of me. So the use of emojis, believe it or not, uh, has grown. And it's just been growing. So as the cases uh, in 2004, there was maybe like a handful of cases in the country. Now, now they're into the thousands. Uh, and uh, so you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I'm just saying, you know, I'm not saying don't use them, but just be careful in, in terms of when you use them, how you use them, because that could have uh, uh, an effect on you. Uh, so I, and I go around and, and uh, you know, people at first are reacting the same way as you. It's like, <laughs> what? You know, but I, I think it's important that they become aware of, you know, possible implications on, on using an emoji and what, what it could mean. Uh, to them individually or their company. Uh, there's been some companies that have lost millions of dollars because someone used an emoji. Right? Um, so, so that's one example. And the other one is 2020, um, we're going to be able to use cannabis, right? right. So uh, early on, after it was passed, we had a forum with uh, the legislators that were involved, uh, you know, uh, Representative Cassidy and Senator Steins, along with law enforcement, lawyers, and other individuals that had some say to the legislation. And to talk about, you know, what this is going to mean to, to all of us in, in, in the future. Uh, for example, if you're, you know, you're undocumented, 
right? Can you use cannabis? Well, you know, the federal government hasn't said that it's okay. Right. So, you know, if you're undocumented, you know, you should be very careful about whether or not, you know, you want to use cannabis. Uh, so, so those are some of the things that, you know, we have been and I have uh, always strived to, to get out to the public because I think sometimes, you know, it's because of lack of information. They end up in court or because of the lack of information, they don't know what to do once they're in court. And so I want to always provide, be able to provide some of that information to, to the public so at least they become aware. Yeah, well, I think you've provided a lot of information, especially about the emoji thing. You have me thinking about every emoji I've ever sent. Like, oh my God, I couldn't. Can you explain the, uh, the, the primary election process and why it's so important to go out and vote on March 17th? Sure. Well, um, number one, March 17th is the actual election day, but we do have uh, in Illinois and in Cook County early voting, uh, which starts on March 2nd through the 16th. Okay. And now it's very easy because you can go virtually anywhere to, to, to go vote. Uh, and, and, it, and it counts. I mean, so it's not like you have to go to your polling place by your house. Um, you know, if you work downtown, you can go downtown um, and uh, go to one of the early voting uh, locations and, and vote. Um, I think it's, it's number one, it's our right. It's our opportunity to, to, um, to lend our voice uh, to our, our system of government, um, and particularly with regards to judges. I think it's very important. You will have most likely more impact, you will be impacted more by judges and their decisions than you will any other elected official that's going to be on the ballot. So I think your listeners should definitely do their homework. Vet the, uh, the candidates, you know, look at them in terms of their credentials, uh, their qualifications, their years of experience, and their bar ratings. Uh, but then also look at them in terms of who they are off the bench. You know, is this someone that goes to work and sits on the bench, renders decisions, uh, and uh, is not interactive in the community? Uh, because I think one of the things is that assists judges, in my view, is that if you're involved in the community, you have a sense and a sensitivity to the issues and the concerns that people are dealing with it in our communities. So I think that's very important to be able to, to have a, an idea you know, what's going on uh, in the community that you are going to be sitting in judgment on. So, so I think that that's uh, uh, important to look at when you look at the qualifications of the candidates. And also with regards to the, the primary, if you don't vote in the primary, okay, you may have had somebody on there that you thought, okay, what, well, I, I like this candidate. But if you don't go out and vote for this individual in the primary, the likelihood that you might not get that opportunity in November is probably pretty good. Because if, if their people don't go out to vote, then in November, that person's name is not going to be on the ballot. Right. So it's important to go out um, in, the, in the primary you know, and, and, and vote for the candidates that you want uh, to give them an opportunity to move on to, to November. I want to thank you for taking the time to educate uh, the people listening in. And, you know, for the people listening in, uh, you know, you've taken the time to, to listen. You, you've learned. I want you to share this, share this with your friends and family, get them educated. It's so important for us to go out and vote. Can't stress that enough. For you, being able to be, to have the opportunity to be the first Latino judge at the Supreme Court, and this will be the final question. You know, what, what does that opportunity mean to you? Well, what it means to me is uh, an individual um, who has been very active in the communities, uh, throughout uh, 
you know, my career. Uh, I think it provides me an opportunity to be able to be a voice, not only for the Latino community, mm-hmm. but for, for many of the communities in, in Cook County and in the state of Illinois. Uh, one of the other things that uh, your listeners should be aware of is that even though it's a countywide election, whoever gets elected um, to be on the Supreme Court is going to have jurisdiction over the entire state. I have had the opportunity to serve as um, president of the Illinois Judges Association. I've been very active in the Illinois State Bar Association. I've traveled throughout the state. You know, so it's, it's so for me, I've had an opportunity to see some of the issues and concerns people have in Cook County, but also with regards to other areas. I mean, I've gone as far down as, as uh, Mount Vernon, which is over down at the tip of, uh, uh, of, of, the, of the state. And I've had an opportunity to see the court system at various different levels throughout the state. And I think that knowledge is going to help me tremendously. When I sit on the court and I hear cases um, that come from other areas of the state, not only just Cook County, but again, it helps in terms of you know the diversity that I've had uh, and the opportunity that I've had to engage with, with diversity. I think that's very, very important, is that we need to have diversity on the court. We need to have diversity of perspective. We need to have diversity of outlook. And we need to have diversity, period, on, on, on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. For everybody out there, um, if you want more information on the judge, please follow him on all social media platforms, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, his website, justicereyes.com. So I want to thank you for your time. Sure, my pleasure. So there you have it. That was the interview with Judge Jesse Reyes. I want to thank the judge for taking the time to educate all of us on what he plans to do for our community and what it's taken for him to get to where he is today. I want to wish him the best of luck in his quest to become the first Latino Supreme Court Justice in the state of Illinois. My name is Carlos Medina, and don't forget to go vote March 17th, because remember, every vote counts. Take care.